podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Welcome back to the TMBA podcast. I'm here with the boss, man. How you doing, good sir? Doing well. Come on, man. Bring me a little bit of energy. What you got? You got your dad face on over there? <laughs> I was just thinking about, yeah, buddy. I was like, oh, I got to bring that back. We are heading towards 2019, not 2009. <laughs> <laughs> Next time we talk to you guys, it's going to be the new year. And we can look at it a bunch of different ways, like a new year, new opportunities, a fresh start. A next chance. I think for a lot of us, Ian, it's just another Wednesday. Yep. <laughs> Keep grinding, you know. And be thankful. It's not a given, so thank you. Yeah, that's a good point. One of the things we want to do here at the end of the year, Ian, is share some lifestyle and business themes that have been echoing through the TMBA airwaves over the year. So the first of those themes gets to the essence of what we're all about here which is personal and financial freedom, and especially how to sustain it by getting your financial house in order and then establishing a way to be financially independent for life. I mean, you can be the world's greatest entrepreneur, but if you're not managing your finances on the back end, from a financial perspective, Ian, all of that effort can go to waste. Gone. Now, reading blogs and listening to podcasts are sometimes seems that there's a huge chasm between two seemingly different ways of achieving this end goal of financial freedom. So on the one hand, there's those who do it by building small businesses. That's sort of the TMBA camp. And on the other theoretical camp, there's those who achieve it by saving hard and investing enough to allow them to safely draw on their portfolio for the rest of their lives. And commonly, that would be 4%. This is a typical theory called the 4% theory in the blogosphere. Now, these financial independents retire early or fire advocates are often able to retire in their early 30s. But the truth is, you'll often find there's more overlap than both sides are willing to admit. And I think there should be more overlap. And that's why we bring this up. With entrepreneurs like us tending their investment portfolios and managing their spending, and fire bloggers often cooking up side hustles and monetizing the very blogs they're sharing these theories on. This is a criticism we put to Christy and Bryce of MillennialRevolution.com. At first, I thought you think it's just kind of like sour grapes and being like, yeah, yeah, shut up, that kind of thing, right? But they do have a legitimate reason for doing that because what everyone's doing when they go to these finance blogs is, A, they're doing it to be entertained and they want to figure out and they want to see how your interesting life is going, and that's, that's good. But the big reason why people do it is they want to replicate it themselves. So when people start coming up and being able to do side hustles and or their blog grows big enough that they actually an income comes from that, their criticism is that, okay, well, you're not really doing the actual retirement thing, right? I mean, like, you're not actually living off the portfolio, you're living off the blog. And the reason why that's a problem is because it kind of perverts the experiment you're not really sure whether it works long-term if the person that you're reading isn't actually withdrawing off the portfolio. We actually do address that. We segregate the funds that we manage to make 
outside of retirement into a separate portfolio that is just used to pay for business expenses or gifts to family members and, you know, non-essential like extra spending that we disclose on the blog when we do that. I don't think we've actually done it yet. But the real portfolio, the one that we originally retired on, we continue to live off of that every year. I'm happy to report that the experiment has been successful. Even just living off of the first portfolio, the initial million dollars, not only has it survived a stock market crash in 2015, it's actually gone up over time. So we're now, like, after three years in retirement, we're now sitting on more money in that portfolio than when we started off with. What voice did you guys feel like you had to bring to this FIRE community? I think a younger voice from the millennial generation. I think because our generation keeps getting a lot of flack, you know, for being lazy, for being entitled. Why isn't the lazy millennial getting a job like the boomers who are a lot more hardworking, all those things. But the thing is, our generation faces a lot of different issues that our parents didn't have to face. Like jobs are a lot less stable. We have to face outsourcing. Interest rates are at an all-time low. So the boomers did really well with housing, whereas for us, the housing prices are really out of reach. So I think the the advice that our parents gave us, which is well-meaning at the time, because they they want what's best for us, but it's just, it's like decades out of date. We need to rewrite the rule book because their advice, although well-meaning, just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you guys have a lot of interesting stances on ownership. Like you have an article called Why Pride of Ownership is Bullshit. A lot of home ownership is emotionally based and not based on math. Out of all the friends I talk to, when you ask them just simple, basic questions, they can tell you how much their mortgage is worth, but they don't tell you how much it costs for maintenance, how much it costs for insurance. They don't even think of that as actually part of the cost of home ownership, right? So it really, when you break it down, it really is an emotional plea to get as many people into that home ownership trap as possible. Otherwise, they are afraid that their housing price is going to fall, right? So The way I see it is like you really have to distance yourself from the emotional decision and really think about it in terms of like what we always like to say on the blog, which is math shit up, right? One of the things I like about the way you guys write is you just show what you do rather than like sort of prescribing things. I appreciate that. My sense is like for you, you think about real estate, there's an opportunity cost there for you because you have better ways to activate that money for you. Is there a moment that you would make the concession to buy real estate, like a sort of overall portfolio size. Have you ever mathed that up and said, oh, maybe we would buy a home at sort of this level? Oh, we own real estate. It's called a REIT. (laughs) It's an investment trust that owns a bunch of properties like shopping malls and commercial properties and office buildings and real estate. And every month they pay us a rental check. People are often surprised to find out, oh, we own real estate, just not directly, because now I get I don't have to swing a hammer. I don't have to evict a tenant. I don't have to worry about weed grow ups. Like, I get all the benefits and I don't have to do any of that other bullshit. Plus, it's diversified and we can sell it within a day. So, that was Christy and Bryce of millennialrevolution.com. One of my favorite blogs I came across this year, in fact, Ian, a personal theme of mine is that I'm not a, a huge fan of social media, but I am an enormous fan of blogs and podcasts. And I think because there's enough friction there that in order to write a blog post, you you need to put some thought and energy and effort into that message. And so every day, Ian, I still wake up to Feedly and I read through blogs in our niche and in niches that I'm interested in. And it really inspires me and informs me. And I just think there's still a lot of magic to the blogosphere. And big ups to Christy and Bryce for being a big part of that. Huge ups. This is one of my favorite topics, Dan, is to uh, argue with 
fire folks about how we're both right. That's <laughs> one of my favorite things to do. And then certainly 2019, Dan, social media has become quite a drag in my life. In fact, I basically quit Instagram, which has been really nice. We should do a, in January, boss man ghosting from social media. What's going to happen? Like I said, basically too, like I didn't commit to, to quitting it. Like it's still on my desktop browser, but it's off my phone. <laughs> I hope you don't quit Instagram and I like your photos. <laughs> I think it's over. What I love about doing this show is that sometimes episodes like the one we've just heard prompt listeners to come up with alternative thoughts and theories. And this proved to be the case when Jace Rodley came on the pod to discuss his 40% rule. me, the biggest issue that I've noticed, I would call it like after the exit, if you will. And when I say exit, I also mean retirement because it's exit from a job. I think this is relevant for 70-year-old retirees, just as it is for 40-year-old people that have done the financial independent early retirement thing, just as it is for 30-year-old multimillionaire entrepreneurs that have got their huge exit. Most of them don't know what to do next. I think for a lot of them, it's fun for a while, like take a year to travel, but a lot of people come back to taking a part-time job just for fun or for some self-worth. And a lot also start a small business. I mean, how many financial independence money bloggers have affiliate deals on their websites? Like as well, a lot of people volunteer. It's not about the money, but they're still working. So I guess my takeaway was we sort of glamorize retirement, but at the end of the day, very few people actually retire when they retire. If you accept the premise that good work that you're engaged in is at least a pillar in a good life, all of a sudden the calculation of you know which path to take becomes put in a different relief because a lot of what early retirement suggests, the early retirement community that is, is that you essentially like do one thing in order to achieve another which is essentially like living, having one of the central pillars of your life as simply a means, not an end. And that's actually one of the core things that bothers me about it. Something else is that maybe you can have the dream tomorrow. How many people might have 500 grand in index funds? I'm not a financial advisor, so please invest wisely. But how many people have 500 grand in index funds and they're getting their 4% on that? And so what's that? 20 grand a year. And they say, I can't retire on 20 grand. What if they put that into another investment that, yes, they had to spend time on that, but actually gives them the freedom to work whenever they want during 24 hours each day, the freedom to work from anywhere with an internet connection? 500 grand is a lot of money to put into websites. It's not that much money to put in an index fund. Right. I think that's kind of where, where my mindset was coming from. The 40% rule in comparison to the 4% rule, I actually, if you look at a lot of websites, like if you're buying them, I think it's like a 28 times monthly net profit, typically you're going to end up with a 40% return on investment, including your time is the core part of that. But if you have nothing else to do with your time, 40% is a way better return than 4% from my perch anyway. So another type of investment we talked about this year, one that is both fascinating and controversial, is of course cryptocurrency. So Greg Gerber came on the show to share the interesting way 
he first got into crypto back in 2013. Is it true that you have invested two thirds of your net worth into cryptocurrency? Well, the cool thing about the way I've gotten into crypto is that I started accepting it as payment. So I was doing some trading in the very beginning, but I've received my cryptocurrency in $9 and $20 increments for, you know, over four years. So has that bloomed into a large part of my net worth? Absolutely. But I wouldn't say I like, you know, I had millions in the bank and I took two thirds of it and bought Bitcoin. That's not, that's not how it worked. Greg, can I just run some words by you? And from a very beginner's level, you explain to me what they mean? When I try to answer that question, the first thing that comes to mind that I love to do is, is just get, throw it right back at you and ask you, Dan, tell me what money is. What's money? So I guess a U.S. dollar would be a symbol that two people or two companies equally trust and value so that you can exchange a store of value between... I've read more complex ideas that like it's a sort of a representation of debt that you can move around. But I think it's a dollar, something that we can both agree that is valuable to us and I can give it to you in exchange for something else. Yeah. And you mentioned trust. Like, why is it that you trust this money? In the case of the US dollar, I guess, because a lot of other people trust it. That's fair. I read a really good quote the other day. I forget who it was, but he said, what gives people trust in the dollar is the US government, their backing of the dollar and our belief that they're going to you know, protect it and they're going to do a good job managing the economy for us. And on the flip side, what gives Bitcoin value is our distrust in the government and our belief that the government might not be the best way to protect our hard-earned wealth and our value and, our, and what we work so hard for. So that's one way that I like to describe what Bitcoin is. It just it represents money, and money is this kind of very intangible thing, and it's a hard thing to explain but really it's just like a store of value and it's a way for us to exchange, like you said. And nowadays, you know, we have like these amazing tools at our disposal with the internet and with technology. We don't need a bank to hold on to our money for us anymore. Like when we were carrying gold bars around, that was, that made sense. Right. But we don't need them to do that anymore. And in the same way, we don't actually need the U S government or the fed or whoever the hell these guys are deciding what we should do with our money. We can just write very simple algorithms that all of us agree should be the way that money should be managed and let those algorithms manage the money supply for us. So that's what Bitcoin is to me. It's a digital store of value. It's a digital like medium of exchange that's managed collectively by the network that manages it and the algorithms that manage it. And those algorithms are actually what give Bitcoin value. That's another big thing people ask, like, why does it have value? Well, it's Bitcoin literally represents the largest supercomputer network on earth. I mean, that's a pretty valuable resource if you ask me. All right, everybody, for Christmas, I bought myself an ad spot on the podcast. I want you guys to go check out dynamitejobs.co if you haven't been there lately. I remember back when I used to have a sourcing manager that I worked with in China, and I still remember this email subject line he sent me one year. It was so surprising. The subject line was just this, new year, new job. And when I opened that email, it turned out that he wanted to leave the company he was working for and come work for me. And that was an enormous opportunity for me. So if you're looking for a new job in the new year, an enormous opportunity that can change your lifestyle, 
over at dynamitejobs.co. We only list jobs from legit companies that are providing jobs with a great deal of schedule and location freedom. Remote jobs means you don't have to go to an office. No more commute and work for legit, interesting companies. So if you want a new job in the new year, go check out dynamitejobs.co. Of course, another big theme this year, and one that we've got skin in the game on, one we're, we're actually getting involved in through our new business venture, Dynamite Jobs, is the lure and potential of remote work. And how really it can be a win-win between people wanting freedom in their lives and careers and people, frankly, trying to employ them and extract the best energy and effort of those people. I think it's really fascinating, Ian, that people are able to live these interesting lives, work fully remote, and have a great deal of control over their lives when you compare you know, the employment situation that many of us were facing even five and 10 years ago. So question to you, Mr. Entrepreneur, would you even be one if 10 years ago you could have gone to dynamitejobs.co? and worked for a fully remote company that paid you well to do interesting work. It's very interesting, man. Like As we get older, you get to see different generations doing different things. So we have the advantage of seeing what our parents did, what we started to do, and then what this next generation is doing. And and I think this is what happens, Dan, when you get old, your mind just gets blown. You're like, I can't believe it. And so <laughs> the challenge is to stay current, and the challenge is to accept it, and the challenge is to listen to some music that you don't necessarily like. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, and it's especially hard, Ian, when these things, they start to happen at scale. And a lot of these little ideas that we toyed with on this show just a handful of years ago have turned into, you know, what's showing up on the pages of business magazines and which is now the way you do things. And I find that so utterly fantastic that things that people would have laughed at, you know, what are these tropical people? What is that all about? You know? Turns out by offering location independence, these companies are often able to get the best talent and compete with market incumbents in competitive spaces. Kean Graham does this. He runs a company called Monetize More, an agency that helps online brands optimize their ad revenue. And he does it amazingly with a team of 100 fully remote staff. We were also lucky enough to have Kean out at DCBKK. He was one of our keynote speakers on stage and just amazed to hear how he manages these 100 people remotely. I'm really passionate about location and schedule freedom and how empowering it is for people. And it allows people to really take control of their lives and live how they want and even optimize their own lifestyle. So they live their own ideal lifestyle. One of your pieces of business advice, Kian, is to lean into this idea of location independence. So like you said, like you're not like tacitly offering this. You're actually preaching it to your team. Like This is a core value of what we're up to here at Monetize More. I want to sort of turn the conversation to talk about this issue of recruiting staff. And you use this word poaching. So poaching is when you strategically target a employee of another company to join your company. The best talent out there aren't free agents looking for jobs. The best talent out there already has a job working for the company and they're usually paid well and are happy with their jobs. 
we were able to utilize the benefits of location schedule freedom as nuggets to kind of hook them into this type of work lifestyle. Has there ever been downsides to poaching? They definitely come at a higher price. That's for sure. Negotiations a lot tougher. But for the most part, they've worked out really well. Poaching is a really important tactic for getting top-level talent. You know, that's one of the biggest things for ramping up a company is getting the best talent. That is the difference of the market leaders versus, you know, the average companies, the mediocre ones is really the talent. That is the derivative to the success of a company. You need A players, as you guys talk about in the podcast. And in order to get these A players, you got to poach. Unless you get lucky with some free agents that either are A players or they turn into A players, that's a certain way. But to get A players off the bat, a lot of them you got to poach. And location-independent businesses have that competitive advantage of offering location and schedule freedom, which is a novelty to a lot of these people. And after a certain amount of time, some of them get sick of the commutes and the politics and just the regular droll of the office. Another theme definitely in line with Dynamite Jobs and all the work we're doing there is that people want location freedom and greater flexibility with their schedules without the pressures of starting their own business. You know, in many ways, Ian, you could say fundamentally the Tropical MBA isn't about entrepreneurship so much as it's about personal freedom. You know, that's sort of the core, core value. I'd say that's true. You can get personal freedom other ways. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. And the problem with being an entrepreneur is freaking hard. I think that's part of the reason why we're so excited about Dynamite Jobs. is like, hey, here's a path where there's a win-win for everybody. That's not everybody has to hoe this hard road. Entrepreneurship is a long roadie and it's often a circuitous journey. And it's not that clear how to get to the end result many of us are seeking. So, so we got a lot of respect for entrepreneurs like Nathan Smith of Admit Scout, who came on the pod to share some of what we have all been through, namely the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey. Two years ago when you spoke to me, I was riding and dying with direct response copywriting. I was 80-20 marketing guy. I wish I had gone forward in the time and listened to your podcast from two weeks ago where you guys said, yeah, you actually need a gigantic audience to monetize that. But essentially in those two years, I've gone from that to doing what I currently do, which is run Facebook funnels for rehab centers. The question is why? And so it's a three-part answer. So number one, despite the really great relationships I had, I found that when I left the bubble of first and second degree connections, the value of what I did, the legibility just nosedived. The second thing that I realized was that copywriting was becoming a chore. I had thought about scaling the business, hiring for it, but I realized I was staring down the barrel of this deliverable, which would be exceptionally difficult to hire for. I didn't want to be doing it myself. 60 hours a week. And I actually talked to some mentors who had what at the time I thought I wanted. And one of them told me, 
Yeah, I take seven clients a year. I get 100% of my clients through referral and I work like 60 hours a week and I love it. And I was like, all right, thank you. I had this dream of I don't have to copyright anymore. I can approach small businesses with a fresh deliverable that's 100% legible to them. And if I start with a contractor who's already an expert at a service, I can just work backward from that and sell the service. That was the beginning of the learning curve. And the ensuing year and a half is where a lot of the hard lessons came from those assumptions. The first thing that occurred to me when you mentioned those three things is that there are problems that a lot of businesses have and they weren't necessarily insurmountable. But it sounds like you were thinking maybe they were not strategically sound in some way. What ultimately led you to believe that those problems were terminal for that business? I think you actually put it great. And let me translate it just a little bit into my mental model, which would be hills to die on. There's no free lunch. Everything's a challenge. Which hill do you want to die on? And I did not want to die on the working 60 hours a week copywriting or having to hire for it. If I'm going to put all of this sweat equity into something, I need to optimize it better so that I don't wake up and it's three years hence and I've built myself a Rube Goldberg contraption that I hate. But one thing is for certain, if you want to carve out your own entrepreneurial path, it's a lot easier if you reach out to others who are on it with you so you know what you're going through. It's one of the reasons we keep talking here about the thousand day principle. Ian, honestly, give me the truth. Are you sick of me talking about the thousand day principle? Or are you still on board with this idea? I'm 100% on board with this idea. You know, a thousand day principle is essentially it takes a thousand days from the time you start to the time you replace your professional income that you had previously. I do wonder about the timelines, Dan. I do wonder if they're expanding or, or contracting. This is always interesting to me. I'm seeing some people do it faster. I'm seeing some people do it longer. I think in general, like when it all shakes down, it takes at least a thousand days to have a sustainable business. I don't see that much changing. You know, the people that I see achieving growth faster, replacing their income from their job faster, not necessarily on a sustainable business. Yeah. Sometimes it's a business opportunity that worked out really well, but something then that if handled responsibly can be parlayed into something that is more sustainable. Right. So this journey and timeline is something that I recently chatted about with one of our former apprentices, David Hehenberger, who's the founder of Fat Cat Apps and Landing Cube. When you go through this process, everything just moves so slowly. And from the day-to-day -day grind, it barely looks like you're making progress. But usually when you do step back year over year, you actually see massive improvements in terms of how things look like at around day 600. So at that point, I had launched a second product. Revenue went up nicely with that. I both got rid of my part-time guy and my cheap full-time guy and replaced them with one very expensive but very capable full-time developer and trying to get through to this last level the recurring sales subscriptions i started to work on a software as a service app that is this merchant metrics amazon seller dashboard merchant metrics okay this is when the quality of your networking started to change yeah so i got the idea for i'm not an amazon seller but i do have a lot of friends and even my brother 
sales on Amazon, but I was at this conference two and a half years ago and I ended up sitting next to a couple Amazon sellers on the table and they all complained about how it was very difficult to get stats for your Amazon business and thought there might be something there, some product for me to build and also rented by my friend Travis, co-founder. So this is Travis Jameson? Yep. Talked to him about this and he thought it's a good idea and we made like some loose plans to do some kind of collaboration once I launched this product. Now to return to the point that David had just mentioned, we left that story off at our DCX event in Prague with Travis Jameson and his team at AMZ Tracker showing an interest in David building a product that would help them track Amazon seller analytics more clearly. It wasn't exactly finished in terms of what my vision for it was, but it was working and the guys from AMZ Tracker liked it and so they decided to acquire a majority stake in it and it wasn't like an insane exit by any means but it was maybe how much you pay for a cheap house in a cheap area of the u.s <laughs> that's roughly how much i made from it keep in mind at that point i i had no money in the bank so this was very much a life-changing so it sort of gave you a that savings cushion plus then you also have the revenue from that thousand day business that you're building yeah so in the meantime on the wordpress plugin business we just kept launching new products and actually hired a US-based support guy as well. So again, just like reinvesting, making sure products keep improving, our support keeps improving and seeing it as a long-term investment. You're a relatively young guy from a relatively traditional country. Yeah, 28 from Austria. And I think it's fair to say you, you live this location-independent lifestyle pretty much to the fullest. What do people make of it when you try to describe it to them? back home, maybe people that took a different path. I noticed that, and maybe you've noticed this too, but most people, they're not at all like that interested. I'm just, now that maybe this whole nomad thing is becoming more of a thing, just the last few months I've had for the first time in a long time, like friends or acquaintances from back home, like reach out to me and be like, hey, like how could I possibly go about doing this? What's the advice? I think when you're going through this process, there's so much uncertainty and stuff just keeps taking forever and if you want to do this and if you're still in a job in a cubicle i think it's just important you get started and you keep moving in that direction i've met hundreds of people that live this location independent lifestyle and run successful businesses and i think very few of them are really like anything special like we're not super smart or working 80 hour work weeks or anything crazy like that we're just all like normal people That's right, boss man. We are just basically normal people. And it's normal to want more personal freedom in your life. And that's what we're all about here. Not only I think is it normal, I think a lot of people are like going against what they feel like is normal. I think a lot of people know that, Dan, but I don't think a lot of people actually act on it. So I hope that Dynamite Jobs is a way for them to feel like they're supporting themselves, their families, their dreams, while not having to do it necessarily all on somebody else's terms. Yeah, one of the themes I've been thinking about, Ian, is like, just because you want more freedom doesn't mean that you want to live in a perpetual state of all the options being open, right? Like one of the things that we've done in our lives is use that personal freedom to make a commitment to a way of doing business. Totally. I mean, when I was designing physical products, these were called design constraints. And it was always easier to start with a set of constraints than it was to start with a blank piece of paper. 
Yeah, look at my constraints. I pull up Google Calendar right now, and it's phone call with so-and-so, phone call with so-and-so, standing call with so-and-so, and it's every week, you know, showing up to the calls, showing up to do the podcast, showing up to pay the bills. We have a very clear idea of the types of people we want to work with, the types of people we won't tolerate, types of things we are and aren't willing to do to grow a business. Sometimes I find that people that are like willing to do anything, wherever there's a glow of cash somewhere, they'll start running in that direction. If you want to live your life with all those options open, go for it, you know? But for me, personal freedom is about having the freedom to choose the unique, quirky, strange, exciting way, whatever it is for you, the way you want to grow your business, that's cool. You should do that and you can have success with it. And you don't have to do things the way that gurus, experts, people older than you, people more successful than you, or people droning on a podcast tell you that you need to do it. That's really the promise of growing lifestyle businesses in my book. You know, One of the things I was doing is just sort of browsing through every episode we did. It's one of those things like if you buy a new car, like recently I bought another Honda Odyssey and I will see every Honda Odyssey that passes me now. You know, like there's not one that's slipping by. And so it it could be that with this remote theme. I mean, obviously we had so many episodes this year about the concept of remote teams, how to grow them, how to have success with them, et cetera. But I mean, I just cannot like open Feedly or Facebook or Twitter without major people commenting on the changing nature of the workforce. It really feels like, of course, surely this was our first year we worked seriously with on Dynamite Jobs and, and helping people with remote teams. You know, so that's the Honda Odyssey thing, but it also really feels like this is a turning point. Now all of a sudden we're seeing businesses at scale, we're seeing major media outlets talk about it. We're seeing all these companies pop up that are helping people grow remote teams. It really feels like 2018 was really the year of remote. Well, Dan, I think it's just going to get better. I mean, hold on to your hat when the economy shits the bed, (laughs) at least in America, which I think it probably will here soon. Everybody probably thinks it will soon. People are going to be looking for new solutions. They're going to be looking for innovative ways to still keep their business afloat with maybe not having a 30,000 square foot office in downtown Austin, right? While still employing good people. Whatever might happen with the economy, my guess is it's probably going to still be good for remote jobs. You know, one of the themes that I also noticed is that it's never been easier to get investment capital. It really feels like you can have some crappy business idea and go around with your hat out and people are just going to dump a couple 10K into it and say, yes, I really want to be a part of your team, or I want to be an angel, or I want to be a part of this tiny fund or whatever. And I don't know, like, is the economy going to affect those things? Or do you think that those funds that are popping up everywhere are going to be immune to the greater machinations of society, so to speak? Oh, of course, I think it'll affect it. I mean, I think that people are always looking for a way to make a, a return on their money. Some people have so much money that they're desperate to figure out a way to deploy it and get benefits, even if they're swinging out nine times out of 10. Yeah. And if the stock market becomes a less interesting investment, it could be the case that small businesses like the ones we're creating become a a more interesting idea in a tough economy. Well, in terms of an asset class, I think that you're absolutely right because the opportunity to own these businesses or fractions of these businesses has never really existed before in the way that it does right now. So 
it's creating a, a whole new class of assets, which I think will continue to be on the rise because in a way it's decentralized, in a way it's anti-fragile, in a way it's something that not everybody can participate in. So I think it will uh, continue to be on the rise. Something certainly we would be interested in working on in 2019, but you're going to have to come back to the show to see what we do about it. And we hope that you do. And thanks for joining us. Another year in the books. One thing is certain in this uncertain world, boss man, is that we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Happy New Year. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.